Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Since faith itself cannot be proved by extraneous evidence, the safest course is to believe in the moral government of the world and therefore in the supremacy of the moral law, the law of truth and love. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Tomorrow marks the 150th anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi's birth. It's a national holiday in India. The United Nations now marks Gandhi's birth as the International Day of Nonviolence. On October 18th at the Field Museum, there will be an event, Gandhi at 150. It features descendants of Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Cesar Chavez talking about peace. Worldview is a co-sponsor of the event, and there's more information at idsevents.org. Let's reflect on Gandhi's legacy with Vijay Prashad. He's director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Thanks for joining us again, Vijay. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. You know, I don't think most people know a lot about Gandhi's deep growing up background. And I was reading a little bit about it. It sounds kind of bland. It sounds like I guess I would call it uh, middle class for the mid-19th century or something. Well, it's very important that you begin there, Jerome, because... You know, Gandhi later in his life is going to be called Mahatma. Uh, Mahatma means great soul. And he takes on a larger than life personality. Uh, You cannot even imagine that somebody like that has a childhood, uh, let alone a process of development, you know, as an individual uh, becoming somebody with an ethical foundation and so on. He becomes legendary. And because somebody like that becomes legendary, You don't afford them the opportunity uh, to be young, to make errors, to grow and so on. Gandhi was born in 1869 in a small town, Porbandar, in Gujarat, where, you know, as you said, it was not a, a very exciting existence. There was some excitement in his own family in terms of uh, the movement of family members and so and so. But it was a very conservative Gujarati Hindu background. Uh, He imbibed some of the rigidities of Hinduism, including caste rigidities and so on. And it was not until uh, Gandhi goes off to take a degree in England uh, that some of these rigidities are shaken a little bit. So you've got to imagine this is a young boy from a provincial town, uh, the end of the Indian subcontinent, a very cloistered, conservative background. And then he's, of course, sent to England and he's shaken. And it's from his time in England that you see essentially the beginning of the person we know today as Gandhi. Well, what's shaking him up in England? He's going to become an attorney, a lawyer, and uh, he goes to school. Uh, I guess his being in the belly of the colonial beast is a, an experience. Later in his life, he'll write a series of articles which get put together as a book. Uh, it's, it's important that people understand that Gandhi's autobiography is actually called A Story of My Experiments with Truth. 
this is important because he is telling you later in his life when he's already an established person that he experimented with truth. Uh, he wasn't somehow gifted with truth or, you know, the prophet didn't show up and, and sort of bless him with the truth or anything like that. He had to experiment with the truth. And in these series of autobiographical sketches, he writes about arriving in England. And actually, this is quite beautiful. Uh, he writes about a humiliation. Again, India is under British colonial rule uh, when he's born in 1869. He grows up, however, uh, in a princely state. In other words, this is a state with an Indian prince who offers a suzerainty. You know, he sees the British monarch as sovereign and says, I just have a, a limited a role uh, in governing my principality. But what this meant was that Gandhi didn't encounter many British people in Porbandar. Uh, Gandhi didn't actually encounter the humiliations of imperialism. He arrives in England and, you know, obviously these sketches are manufactured. You know, all autobiographies are put together to show you a certain person. But there's something quite sincere about the story from England because he arrives and he has the wrong suit. Uh, you know, in other words, his clothes, his English clothes, which he wears as he disembarks from the ship, uh, are wrong. They're for the wrong season. And he feels humiliated by this. Then when he's in London... Uh, he's a vegetarian, of course. He grew up in this, as I said, quite rigid, uh, you know, caste environment in Gujarat. And so he has to find these vegetarian restaurants. And there were, of course, vegetarian restaurants in London, but they were run by, you know, people who were dissenters of one kind or the other, oddball people, you know, who had pamphlets on vegetarianism. And uh, it was all the rage, you know, in a certain set of non-conformist English people. And he encounters these people and it's amongst them that he, you know, starts to read Tolstoy, a particularly a book that marks him quite fundamentally, which is Tolstoy's book called The Kingdom of God is Within You. And these experiences of encountering dissenters, non-conformists, because of his vegetarianism, expands his horizon. You know, that very conservative uh, you know, follow orders sort of young man that arrives in England experiences racist humiliation and then he experiences nonconformists and dissenters. And it opens, you know, incredible imaginative horizon uh, for this young man. He eventually gets his law degree and goes to South Africa to work and is there for 21 years. This is a formative experience. And talk about, you know, he experiences a different level of racism. And this is the wellspring for the nonviolent movement. Well, in fact, Gandhi becomes Gandhi in South Africa. You know, he, he is not born... Uh, as it were, in India or born in England. He's born in South Africa. That's his real rebirth into this icon of nonviolence. It's very important that people understand what happens in South Africa. He's a layabout when he returns to India. His family is disappointed with him. And then quite a prosperous Gujarati family in South Africa calls to their home uh, you know, land of Gujarat and says, send a lawyer because we are fighting against discrimination from the South African government. You know, the past laws and so on. The, the South African government is not allowing uh, non-Christians uh, to register marriages and things like that. You know, basic humiliations of colonial rule that this trading community was experiencing in South Africa. This was not directed only at workers and so on. So this trading community was able to raise the funds 
to ask for a lawyer. And of course, nobody wanted to go. So they sent off this young layabout, Mr. Gandhi, arrives in South Africa. Yes, experiences uh, racism against Asians. Just what are you doing in this car, Kuli? I have a ticket, a first class ticket. You see? Mohandas K. Gandhi, attorney at law. I'm on my way to Pretoria to conduct a case for an Indian trading firm. Didn't you hear me? There are no coloured attorneys in South Africa. Sir, I was called to the bar in London and enrolled at the High Court of Chancery. I am, therefore, an attorney. And since I am, in your eyes, coloured, I think we can deduce that there is at least one coloured attorney in South Africa. Smart, bloody Kaffer. Throw him. Just move your black ass back to third class, or I'll have you thrown over the next station. But I always go first class. I've travelled all... And it's also important to, I think, immediately say that Gandhi is a man of his background. Uh, you know, he's a man with very limited experience of, of a worldly kind, even though he had been to England. And he does certainly have, you know, racist attitudes towards uh, black South Africans. You know, that should be there. But he grows from that. And I, I would like to return to that later. But the real point is that it's in South Africa working with the traders against the discriminatory policies that Gandhi discovers the Indian working class in South Africa. You know, enormous numbers of indentured labor, particularly from the Indian area of the Tamil country, what is now Tamil Nadu, a huge number of laborers were brought to South Africa to work the mines in towns that are so quaintly called Newcastle in the state of uh, KwaZulu-Natal, you know, up in northern Natal. And so Gandhi encounters these miners. Now, it's interesting because it's from the miners that Gandhi learns the tactics which become part of nonviolence. This is not something he invents out of whole cloth. He sees them go on strike. He understands the hunger strike from them. You know, he later will say, I learned the hunger strike from my mother because my mother would go on strike, uh, you know, would go on uh, fast once a week. And we'd all feel guilty about it. Uh, she didn't go on a hunger strike. She went on a kind of religious fast. But it was from these workers in South Africa that Gandhi saw the mobilization of hunger strikes, of striking, of nonviolent activity. He saw all this from the workers uh, because, after all, this is now in the repertoire of global uh, workers, you know, the idea of going on strike and so on. Uh, Gandhi followed them into prison. He engaged with them in prison. And I would say he is a product. His real schooling takes place amongst the uh, Indian miners in the province of KwaZulu-Natal who really teach Gandhi about the tactics of nonviolence, which then he will raise uh, not only to a strategy but to a philosophy. So it's in South Africa that Gandhi... Uh, you know, becomes Gandhi and learns about the kind of range of political activity uh, that he will then take back to India after 21 years. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad, and we're discussing Gandhi. Tomorrow is the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth, and Vijay Prashad is a historian. He's director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. I want to go back to what you said about uh, how he was 
uh, racist towards black South Africans. Can you go into a little more detail? Because this is you know, hotly debated in Africa now, and uh, people look back on this period and say, well, Gandhi wasn't so Gandhi uh, when he was there in South Africa. Well, certainly that's, uh, I think, a legitimate criticism. When you see Gandhi's writings, he uses uh, you know, slur words that are, were commonplace being used by the whites then to refer to blacks. Um, they were also, of course, a vocabulary that was imbibed with the Indians. I mean, you, you must understand that in colonialism, let's take South Africa as just one example. There were gradations of humiliation. You know, uh, the South African government before apartheid, apartheid was a system that was institutionalized in 1948. Long before the apartheid laws, the South African, you know, colonial government had gradations of humiliation. There was the whites on the top, you know, there were the coloreds, the Indians, the blacks. And this was basically a standard feature of everyday life. Coloreds could go to certain places, uh, Indians could go to certain places, blacks could go to certain places, so on. So this gradation affected everybody. Uh, in other words, even the Indians would absorb uh, the sense that at least we are better than the blacks. And this was something uh, that entered the vocabulary. You know, the, some of the most hurtful words were used by Indians in South Africa. It's important to understand that it's not because Indians, you know, have some sort of inherent racism or anything like that. It's the system of graded humiliation that produces... Uh, you know, uh, participation in, in racism. And Gandhi certainly adopted that. I mean, it would have been extraordinary for Gandhi at the time in the late 19th century, early 20th century, for him to have been above that. It would have been quite extraordinary. But as I said, you know, if you take Gandhi only at, say, 1902 and look at a letter where he uses some of these words and say, well, Gandhi's a racist, then you don't understand what happens to people because Gandhi grows a great deal between 1902 and when he's assassinated in 1948. And you see Gandhi grow, understand racism, understand uh, his own complicity in it. And unfortunately, you know, a man like that you'd have thought would have had, you know, the kind of reflective consciousness to say, well, I'm sorry I behaved like that in the past. But, but where you do see him apologize in a way for some of his views is on caste, where he had some horrendously rigid views about caste. Toward the end of his life, he was not the most radical person on the idea of caste, but he grew a lot. And he used to apologize for some of his earlier ideas. So I would just like to say that, you know, when we think about people like Gandhi, you know, uh, who become lionized, who become, you know, almost statues rather than people, uh, we don't give them the opportunity uh, of growth. And in fact, in, on the African continent now, people are so angry at Gandhi that statues of him have been attacked. Um, which, you know, I think is not really understanding that Gandhi is a person. Let's understand him. Let's criticize him. But also let's learn from somebody like that. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad about Mahatma Gandhi. Tomorrow marks the 150th anniversary of his birth. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. 
Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. When we left off before the break, VJ, we were just about to get Gandhi to India from South Africa, where he really takes what he learned in South Africa about nonviolent strikes and communications and puts it into play for the independence of India. You see, Gandhi is an interesting figure because, in a way, he is that person who is in the right place at the right time. Before Gandhi returns to India, there were three currents in the national movement, the movement against the British colonial uh, Raj. Three very important movements. One was a movement uh, which was in the Indian National Congress, uh, founded in 1885. The Indian National Congress was made up of essentially grand men, you know, landowners, important uh, professionals, some princes were members and so on. And this group was known to make petitions to the government of India, that is the British government, saying we would like to have a little more say in the governance of the country. So they were, as it were, very timid in their attitude toward uh, British colonialism. But nonetheless, they had formed an organization. It had a kind of pan-Indian character and they had experience in petitioning the government. The second stream of Indian nationalism was uh, with the students. And the students had radicalized very deeply after the 1905 partition of Bengal, an administrative partition conducted by the British government. And they moved very quickly into what at the time was favorably called terrorism. In other words, they would attack British officials. Uh, They said it's fair game to assassinate police officers and so on. Uh, Very, very brave people. Uh, Many of them went to the gallows. Uh, Many of them uh, sacrificed everything for the cause. The third set of groups that were part of the broad Indian national movement were the peasant and worker, but mainly peasant uprisings. These were sporadic. They had all kinds of objectives and they were spread across the country. What Gandhi did when he came back is he threw himself into the Congress party and he said to the students, I admire your courage. I don't admire your tactics. You're getting yourself killed. I would like to see your bravery and your sacrifice inside the Congress. He brought them into the Congress. And then he turns to these grand men of the Congress, you know, the professionals, the the landowners and so on, and says, you cannot have a national movement if you're merely petitioning the government. This has to become a mass movement. And he pivots around and goes into the countryside and gets involved in some of these early peasant struggles. He calls them satyagraha, which means, you know, action on the basis of truth. It's a term that Gandhi coins. He goes into these areas. He says, this is a satyagraha. He brings the peasantry into the national movement. And really, this is the genius of Gandhi. I mean, uh, you know, for all my differences with Gandhi on politics, you have to really admire the fact that he was able to take 
what was effectively an aristocratic bourgeois organization and give it a mass character and he utilized the students as the cadre as the workers of the congress party to go into these peasant areas instead of sacrificing themselves by killing uh, you know a police officer and, and then being hung they sacrificed their lives building capacity among the peasantry organizing the peasantry into the national movement it was a considerable feat by gandhi by the 1920s the indian movement had become a mass anti colonial movement it was no longer petitioning the government of india you had mass struggles building power telling the british government if you don't concede to our demands we're going to paralyze the country And so something like the well-known salt marches were a thing that was not popular among the elites in the Indian Congress party they thought why do we need a salt march why why do we focus around the salt uh tax we should be doing something different whereas Gandhi was fusing the peasants to the elite there he was doing something that was going to be a mass movement you see one of the key i think quite intelligent things about Gandhi was he was able to take theory the anti colonial theory and give it a popular character so from the 19th century very important indian nationalists wrote about the drain of wealth from india what they argued was the british had arrived in india the british were taking the lion's share of land revenue of rents from the land using that money to buy raw materials in india in other words the indians were buying their own raw materials sending it to england where they were these raw materials particularly cotton were shaped into you know shirts and so on and then sold back to india there was a drain of wealth from india it's a elegant theory it was true of course but it was difficult to explain gandhi was able to take that theory and you know make it a mass political event by saying that every indian should sew their own clothes and so then he said everybody should learn how to make their own cloth you know don't allow our cotton to go abroad and we made into cloth you make it in your own house so now every single house that started to do spinning men and women this is other other interesting thing uh, spinning cloth imagine uh, men uh, having to sit and spin cloth as a national activity that means that nationalism anti colonial nationalism was no longer merely an activity of the streets an activity of people who are willing to get beaten sacrifice themselves and so on it became something that could happen in any house in the domestic sphere where you were now you know spinning cloth as a protest against um the british empire and salt was the very same thing it's a very elegant critique that uh, gandhi made it's not just the salt tax it were all the levies that the british government was imposing on peasants on the traders on the middle class on the bulk of the population gandhi took all the levies and he sort of condensed it around salt and said i'm going to march from one end of gujarat i'm going to go to the sea and i'm going to make salt and i'm going to challenge the british and by doing that he not only challenged the empire but he also allowed people to see that the salt tax was an injustice you know something that people had written pamphlets about he now took that pamphlet and made it into a political as it were you know image in somebody's head you can say i am going to make salt from the sea that is a critique of the empire you know rather than just read the pamphlet and get enraged he made that pamphlet into something effectively political so both the spinning of cotton 
and the salt march, it shows you that there was a very keen understanding of how to take complicated ideas and make a mass movement out of them. You know, nonviolence is not just the absence of violence. It's about creative politics for masses of people to challenge power. Well, what does this do to the British? How does this wound them? Well, it wounds them on two levels. Uh, Firstly, it was greatly embarrassing for the British. Colonial governments don't like to be seen as colonial governments. They like to be seen as it were uh, avuncular, like an uncle or, you know, like parents. You know, in place of a parent, it shall be I. And I'm benevolent and I'm decent and I'm educating you. I mean, I'd just like to say that when the British left India in 1947, the literacy rate was 12%. Only 12% of Indians, after 350 years of British colonial rule, uh, could read and write. So this avuncular posture was merely their self-image. And what Gandhi did was by challenging the roots of the empire, he forced the imperialists to fight back. So very soon after his return from South Africa, when they conducted uh, the fight against the so-called black laws, you know, during World War II, very restrictive laws were put in place, much more restrictive than the normally restrictive laws of colonialism, uh, you know, to suppress the press, to suppress freedom of association and so on. And when the Indian freedom movement challenged that, you had this incident in Amritsar at Jallianwalabagh where one British officer leads his platoon into an enclosed garden and opens fire and kills hundreds of people. Should we issue a warning, sir? They've had their warning. No meetings. Now, this Jallianwalabagh episode uh, was provoked, essentially, by the mass struggle. And it greatly embarrassed the British, you know. Uh, This is tantamount to having uh, the civil rights photographs on the front page of Pravda week after week in the Soviet Union saying, look at the United States. This is not the kind of propaganda that the British wanted. They didn't want Jallianwala Bagh to become till today. And this is the 100th anniversary of Jallianwala Bagh. Till today, uh, there's been no real apology from the British government. The Archbishop of Canterbury went this last month uh, to Jallianwala Bagh and he laid down, prostrated himself before a monument and kissed the earth and begged forgiveness. The first time one has seen something like that. This is a place that commemorates a great wickedness. The souls of those who were killed and wounded of the bereaved cry out to us from these stones. I am so ashamed and sorry for the impact of this, for this crime committed here. As I say, I cannot speak for the government. That is for the government to do. I am a religious leader, not a politician. But as a religious leader, I mourn the tragedy that we see here. But, you know, this is just one incident of hundreds of incidents of great violence. But you see that one incident became a message. It became a symbol of the brutality of the British, the words Jallianwala Bagh. So that was one thing that really impacted the British. The second was certainly these struggles put a lot of pressure on the economy. Why was this so? Because Gandhi, even though he himself was deeply conservative, 
didn't like uh, labor strikes and so on. The importance of the mass movement, it cascaded into the creation of the Indian trade union movement. Uh, the trade union movement is entirely separate from Gandhi. He was not uh, in support of it. But the trade union movement emerged in India as a product of this mass struggle. And this was something that British capitalists in particular were not happy about because this trade union movement radicalized very quickly. I mean, I could go on, Jerome, but the basic point is that this was not a symbolic impact on the British Empire. This had quite a fundamental impact. I'm talking with Vijay Prashad about Mahatma Gandhi. Tomorrow marks the 150th anniversary of his birth. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. I wanted to ask some questions about caste in India. And when um, India is imagining itself as a new nation, Gandhi is involved in a conversation with B.R. Ambedkar. He is the Dalit leader who uh, writes the Indian constitution and is quite an interesting character. People should probably know a lot more about him in this country. He's very interesting. Uh, but they have a kind of debate over what things should look like. Um, what are the differences between the two? You're right. Dr. B. R. Ambedkar was born in 1891 in Maharashtra, not far away from where Gandhi was born in Gujarat. Uh, he comes by a scholarship to Columbia University in New York City, uh, takes a degree there, studies anthropology, writes a very brilliant account of the genesis of the caste system, returns to India, gets involved in politics, and is really a thorn in the side of Gandhi. You see, Gandhi had a liberal view of caste. He felt that the worst aspects of the caste system, in other words, graded hierarchy of humanity, the worst aspects of it, untouchability and so on, should be abolished. But, you know, caste system by itself, he didn't have a problem with. In fact, he thought, it's not a bad idea for you to follow the occupation of your parents. You know, there's so much tension and pressure on young people and so on. He wrote like that, a very cavalier attitude towards what is essentially uh, institutionalized humiliation. Dr. Ambedkar, coming from an untouchable family, a Dalit family, Dalit is, is a word that means broken men, a very powerful uh, word itself. Ambedkar uh, was very upset with Gandhi's position. In fact, in an important speech, which I think people should read, called The Annihilation of Caste, he argued that there is no way to reform the caste system. It has to be entirely destroyed. And Gandhi and he clashed right through the 1930s and 40s. They disagreed on, on this fundamental aspect of what should Indian society be like. I always say that as I met Mr. Gandhi in the capacity of an opponent, I have a feeling that I know him better 
than most other people because he had opened his real fangs to me and I could see the inside of the man. You see, while others who generally went there as devotees saw nothing of him except the external appearance which he had put up as a Mahatma. But I saw him in his human capacity, the bare man in him. Temple entry, that was all the thing that he wanted to do. Which is a very, nobody cares for temp, Hindu temples now. The untouchables have become. He's so conscious of the fact that temple going is of no consequence at all. We want untouchability to be abolished. But we also want that we must be given equal opportunities so that we may rise to the level of the other classes. Mere washing off of untouchability is of no consequence. Ambedkar made the point that if you're going to attack caste at its root, this is going to impact Hinduism. Because Hinduism without caste is not something that is easy to imagine. So even the very religion uh, needs to be questioned. He's a very radical person, uh, Dr. Ambedkar was, but also highly distinguished. He was invited to draft the Indian constitution. The Indian constitution abolishes untouchability. No dispute on that with Gandhi. But it also makes certain uh, more fundamental issues. Ambedkar, when he uh, finished the constitution, when it passed and ratified, you know, in 1950, uh, Dr. Ambedkar said, look, to have political democracy is not enough. Just having a position is not sufficient. You have to have economic democracy, which means you have to attack the basis of the caste system. Uh, if you're going to have economic democracy, uh, you're going to have something like socialism. And, and this is necessary. Ambedkar was a very radical man. Gandhi didn't want to go in that direction. Gandhi had created his own understanding of socialism. He called it Sarvodaya, which means welfare to all. Uh, it's also quite a charming philosophy. You know, they shared socialism in common. They disagreed on what would be the role of birth uh, in this kind of socialist society. To elaborate on that a little bit, uh, it sounds like Gandhi's idea of socialism is kind of a uh, small bore rural change uh, socialism as opposed to something uh, that Nehru was into, which was kind of a big industrial kind of socialism that was becoming more popular at the time. Um, what were the tensions there? Well, you know, it's not a question of popularity. It had become essential in a way in uh, Indian society by 1947. Um, you know, industry had wiped out uh, you know, uh, small manufacturing, artisanal sector and so on. Uh, this, of course, continued to exist and some sections of it exists now. But they were no longer able to really compete against modern industry. So Nehru was essentially going with the flow of history. He was arguing, we're going to have modern industry. The question is, who should control it? And he came down on the side of you know, the commanding heights of the economy should be controlled by the government. Mr. Gandhi, on the other side, had a very romantic idea about the economy. You know, as you say, he wanted a sort of village communism. You know, people live in villages, there are artisans, there are peasants, everybody barters with each other. Uh, there is no power relation because, you know, if you have property, then property is going to be the greatest uh, consolidation of power against other people. Then you have to have a security force to defend your property and so on. So Gandhi tried to turn backwards and make the argument, you know, of a return to a kind of village community. This was very romantic. And Ambedkar's criticism, Dr. Ambedkar said, look, the village community in India 
is bathed in caste hierarchy. So unless you attack caste hierarchy, your village communism is going to become village totalitarianism, you know, with the uh, dominant caste dominating. That was Ambedkar and Gandhi's debate. But really, this was not something serious because the Gandhian vision never had a chance. You know, you, you can't be arguing for that kind of U-turn uh, when, you know, hundreds of millions of people are already committed to some sort of industrial society. And unfortunately, uh, there was never really a, a serious debate between the, as it were, Nehruvian path of a modern industrial society and Gandhi's criticism. Because, I mean, a lot could have been learned from what Gandhi was saying, from what Ambedkar was saying about how to organize society. You know, the direction that Nehru took uh, was essentially a dead end for the masses of India. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. 700 million Indians continue to live in deprivation. You know, modern industrial society hasn't helped them. I wanted to ask a question about Gandhi towards the end of his life. I mean, he's a radicalized figure towards the end of his life. He's got some uh, really different ideas, and it's almost like Martin Luther King towards the end of his life. When you get to a spot and, you know, you get a pretty big idea of what's going on, um, things get pretty wild. You know, that's also true. I agree with you. But it's also the timing of when Gandhi got older. Unfortunately, in India, in the last two decades before the independence of India and Pakistan, unfortunately, uh, religious politics became a very important uh, part of the political landscape. And uh, in 1925, you had the creation of a group in Nagpur, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is a sort of right-wing fascistic organization. Uh, by the way, the current Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, is a member of the RSS. It's a, very much uh, in the mold of Mussolini. I mean, they took inspiration from the Italian fascism of Mussolini. So that tendency grew... Uh, the tendency of what is known as Muslim separatism grew that eventually will lead to the creation of Pakistan and so on. So this religious politics comes to a head in the 1940s when the question of you know, independence is on the horizon and terrible riots break out uh, between Hindus and Muslims in Calcutta, the city where I was born, in Bengal, and then in Noakhali, uh, a district uh, in the east of India. And Gandhi here plays what I think is his most important role. I mean, he goes to these places almost as a solitary uh, figure. You know, this is an individual satyagraha. This is action on the basis of truth with Gandhi as the only satyagrahi, the only oh, one acting. And in Noakhali, he walks for miles, you know. He walks around, meets people, begs them not to fight. <laughs> We should understand today that if Hindus and Muslims in Bengal do not want to stay with each other, then there is no force that can compel them to stay together. In the same way, the opposite is also true. No force can separate them. In Calcutta, he goes on a hunger strike, begs people, don't kill anymore. You know, that Calcutta 
Riot is known as the Great Calcutta Killing. It was a horrible period in 1946. And Gandhi really throws himself and uh, makes an argument saying, you know, religious differences may be there, but they should not be politicized. You know, don't uh, lead to violence. Hindus and Muslims must get together. In fact, it was this position, Jerome, this very strong position of Hindu-Muslim unity that earned him uh, the ire from the RSS, this group founded in 1925 based on Mussolini's philosophy. Uh, this group actually, in some oblique way, is involved in Gandhi's assassination in 1948. And I, I say with uh, some sorrow, I mean, again, even though I have disagreements with Mr. Gandhi and his philosophy, I say with some sorrow that now in India, the government of Mr. Modi, uh, the BJP political party very closely allied to the RSS. They've denigrated Gandhi's name completely. They're trying also to appropriate Gandhi for their own interests. Uh, this is not a real Gandhi. This is a Gandhi manufactured by them, you know, uh, for their own politics. These are the people whose political lineage killed Gandhi. And I think really that needs to be on the table. Uh, there's a Bengali song called Man Walks Alone, and we're going to play a little bit of it now. And Gandhi liked this song at the time we're talking about where he's out there walking alone. What's this about? It's a beautiful song. You know, Rabindranath Tagore, one of India's best-known poets, uh, comes from a great family, the Tagore family. They're all artists and poets and so on. Tagore also happens to be uh, one of the few people who returned uh, the Nobel Prize uh, because he uh, was angry at colonialism. I mean, he's quite a you know considerable figure. In the 1900s, early 1900s, he wrote a song called Ekla Cholore, uh, a beautiful, haunting song, uh, which says basically that, you know, in the face of, uh, of injustice or problems or, you know, uh, I mean, if nothing else, I'm going to walk on my own. You know, I'm just going to do it. Like, you know, if you're not coming with me, I'm going to do it, you know. And in a sense, what the song is singing, we're all walking by ourselves, but we're walking together. And Gandhi really liked this because, as I said, Toward the end of his life, there were many instances where he was involved in, you know, as it were, an individual satyagraha, an individual struggle. And when I think of Gandhi walking in Noakhali, going from village to village, begging people uh, not to, uh, you know, kill each other, begging them on the basis of some idea of Indian nationalism, I imagine that the song playing in the background is a song, this song from Tagore, which Gandhi loved. Ekla uh, Cholo Re, you know, I'll walk alone. Jodi Tor Dak Shune Kyona Shay Tobe Akla Cholo Re, Jodi Tor Dak Shune Kyona Shay Tobe Akla Cholo Re, Tobe Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo Re, Tobe Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo, Akla Cholo Re, Jodi Tor Dak Shune Kyona Shay Tobe Akla Cholo Re. That's Rabindranath Tagore's Man Walks Alone, and that was a favorite song of Gandhi uh, at the time towards the end of his life. 
I wonder if you could say something, uh, Vijay, about what the legacy and how we should think of Gandhi today at 150. Um, it's something that um, we're marking here in Chicago at the Field Museum, but I don't think a lot of people are really taking it in and applying Gandhi's lessons today. Well, you know, let me say a few things. The first thing is I think we really need to think about the emergence of an individual as a significant force in history. We should not put too much on the shoulders of one man. I mean, I think that's a real error that we make, even with Martin Luther King. Uh, You know, these are extraordinary people. They are made extraordinary by the movements around them, by their own development. You know, you find something that, say, King wrote as a young man or that King did in his private life that should not delegitimize the immense contribution that a person like that made to world history. So we need to really sort of dial down uh, the fascination with Gandhi and at the same time really ramp up our appreciation for what this individual is able to accomplish. I think there are some important lessons. You know, Gandhi is not about passivity. It's about active action against power, against injustice. He didn't preach passive resistance. He preached what he called active nonviolence. I think that's an important thing. You can't sit around and let injustice go unanswered in front of you. Mass movements need to be created. It's not just, you know, you having a perfect position. I think that's a big lesson from Gandhi. But more than anything in this time, in India particularly, I think the lesson has to be a lesson for amity amongst people. You know, this ramping up of religious intolerance It's extraordinary. Uh, It's breaking India today. India is not the India in which I was born uh, 52 years ago. It's a very different country. Uh, You know, it's not Gandhi's India any longer. I think that's part of the lesson uh, of where we are today, a country that boasts about its billionaires. You know, Gandhi in the 1920s gave a speech and he said something that I'd like people to reflect on. He said the test of a civilization is not the number of millionaires it has, but absence of starvation among the masses. Let that be our lesson we take from Gandhi. You know, today, when there are not millionaires, but billionaires, and yet hunger among so many people, uh, this is a disgraceful situation. No point uh, having a statue of Gandhi in a city if you have hungry people in that city. P.J. Prashad is a historian and he's director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Thanks for joining us and talking and reflecting on Mahatma Gandhi on the 150th anniversary of his birth. Thanks a lot, Jerome.
Also, I want to remind people that on October 18th at the Field Museum, there will be an event, Gandhi at 150. It features descendants of Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Cesar Chavez talking about peace. Worldview's a co-sponsor of the event, and there's more information at idsevents.org. Tomorrow on Worldview, I'll talk with Naomi Klein about her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.